Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. When it comes to infectious diseases and blood cultures, providers often think of coagulase negative staphylococcus species as contaminants, but that thinking isn't always right. Given an increased frequency in clinically significant coag negative staph infections, coupled with a rise in pathogenicity, it's imperative that we can distinguish pathogenic isolates from contaminants. Today, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Michaela Wormers, an internal medicine clinical pharmacist, who will review evidence that helps us determine if a positive coag-negative staph culture is the real deal. Imagine this. You are working late on a Friday evening when one of your patient's blood cultures comes back positive with coagulase-negative staphylococcus. You find yourself asking, well, is this a contaminant or is it a pathogen? And if it is a pathogen, how are you going to treat it? My hope is that with this presentation today, we will be able to answer those questions and many more. Why is this topic important? Well, if we overtreat our patients and think everyone has an infection with coagulase negative staphylococcus, it will lead to antibiotic overuse and thus increase antibiotic resistance. Additionally, we will expose our patients to these antibiotics and put them at risk for adverse events and toxicities. On the other hand, if we undertreat our patient and assume it's a contaminant, we could be giving our patients abbreviated courses of antibiotics, which can increase their risk for relapse, morbidity, and mortality. This is why it is crucial to distinguish between pathogenicity and contamination with coagulase-negative staphylococcus, and that directly brings me into my learning objectives for today. The first is to describe the epidemiology and pathogenicity of coagulase-negative staphylococcus species, which I will be referring to as CONS throughout the remainder of this presentation. We will also outline an evidence-based approach to determine the clinical significance of CONS isolates. And finally, we will identify empiric and definitive treatment regimens for pathogenic CONS. I want to start off with some basics in the microbiology laboratory. Our staphylococci species can either be coagulase-positive or coagulase-negative. The most common coagulase-positive species is Staph aureus, but with coagulase-negative species, these are the species that are unable to coagulate rabbit plasma, and there are about 80 species total that live on our skin. However, only about four of these can actually cause pathogenesis in humans. These include Staph hemolyticus, which can cause bloodstream infections, Staph saprophyticus, which is a normal part of our urogenital flora and thus can cause urinary tract infections in the hospital. Staph lugdunensis, which needs to be taken as seriously as Staph aureus and thus will not be the topic of this presentation. And then finally, Staph epidermidis. This is the most commonly clinically encountered coagulase-negative Staphylococcus species and thus will be the focus throughout the remainder of this presentation. When we think about the epidemiology of Staph epidermidis species, when a patient is admitted to the hospital, they have antibiotic-friendly strains of Staph epidermidis. 
However, after just a few days, these antibiotic-friendly strains become antibiotic-resistant strains. And these resistant strains then easily spread from unit to unit, hospital to hospital, and beyond. Additionally, staph epidermidis has the ability to horizontally transfer its antibiotic-resistant genes to other staph species, including that of staph aureus. So it actually helps to increase resistance rates to staph aureus and increase methicillin-resistant staph aureus as well. In terms of the pathogenesis of staph epidermidis, there are three key factors. One that I alluded to is that it has a normal niche on the human skin, giving it easy access to cause infection, especially when intravenous lines are placed. The second is that it can easily cause changes in the human host population and increase resistance. And the third and probably most important pathogenic factor is its ability to adhere to biomaterials and elaborate biofilm. And this brings me into how exactly it produces biofilms. There are three key steps as seen in this image, adherence, maturation, and dispersal. With adherence, autolysins help the bacteria bind to the surface proteins. With maturation, the surface colonization allows the biofilm to grow and mature. And then finally, with dispersal, there are phenol-soluble molecules that allow the top layer of the biofilm to break off and spread to other areas of the body. In addition to its ability to produce biofilms, Staph epidermidis also has several mechanisms of resistance. There is one main mechanism of resistance that I would like for you all to be aware of, and this is mediated by the MECA gene. The MECA gene encodes a low-affinity penicillin-binding protein that helps form the bacterial cell wall. And this is part of a mobile genetic element called the staphylococcal chromosome cassette. And this cassette is what allows for the horizontal transfer of genes from species to species. Now that we've discussed some of the pathogenic factors and the mechanisms of resistance, we can think of the type of infections caused by these coagulase-negative staphylococcus. In the light blue on this bar graph, this is the percentage of each infection that we see here in the hospital. The most common are healthcare-associated bloodstream infections, intravascular catheter infections, and nosocomial urinary tract infections. In the dark blue, this is the percentage of infections caused by cons specifically. So you can see that even in infections that are more rare, a large percentage of these can be caused by cons. For today, I want to focus on two infections that are commonly seen in the hospital and that you will be most likely to clinically encounter as they, will, as they are highly associated with cons. And these are the healthcare-associated bloodstream infections and the intravascular catheter infections. Before I dive into these infections further, I want to first think about what the rate of contamination is in blood cultures. Well, here at Mayo Clinic, there is a 1.2% rate of contamination in our laboratory. So if we think about that, that means for about every one in 100 blood cultures that comes back positive, one is likely to be a contaminant. Well, what if we extrapolate that to our patients who have two of two blood cultures come back positive? What is the rate of contamination here? It is actually quite rare. It's a one in 10,000 chance. And when I say two positive blood cultures, I do not mean two blood cultures from the same peripheral line. It either has to be from one peripheral and one central or two separate peripheral lines. 
This was modeled in a study that looked at the significance of positive blood cultures. You can see that they chose contamination rates of between 0.5% and 6%. They looked at patients who had both two of two blood cultures positive and modeled this for patients who had one of two blood cultures positive as well. You can see that in patients who had two of two blood cultures positive, their positive predictive value neared 100% regardless of what the contamination rate was. And the positive predictive value, if it's high, it means that the patient likely had an infection versus a contamination. But if you look at those patients with the bottom three lines who only had one of two blood cultures positive, the positive predictive value drops drastically. So there is much more risk of contamination if there's only one of two blood cultures positive. Now that we've thought about the risk of contamination, we can talk about some blood culture pearls in general. As I've mentioned, paired blood samples are, rec are recommended to be drawn prior to empiric antibiotics. And paired blood samples, again, is drawing from two separate peripherals, or one peripheral and one central line. Specifically with catheter-related bloodstream infections, we also need to consider the differential time to positivity. This means that if the culture drawn from the tip of the suspect catheter of infection comes back greater than two hours before that peripheral blood culture comes back positive, then there is high sensitivity and high specificity that the patient likely has a catheter-related bloodstream infection. So that differential time to positivity can clue us into that. With that being said, there is controversy with tip cultures. If we draw them too often, they will come back positive a lot more times than not, and it could lead to overtreatment with antibiotics. So here at Mayo, we have a policy put in place where tip cultures are not to be drawn unless we highly suspect the patient has a catheter-related bloodstream infection. Now that I've provided you with a lot of good background material, we can look at our patient case. This is the patient case we will be utilizing throughout the remainder of this presentation. He is a 79-year-old male, hospitalized four days ago in the intensive care unit for respiratory failure. He had a central line placed on the day of admission. On day four, he developed fever, so blood cultures were drawn. The next day, one of two blood cultures came back positive with cons. Some vital signs in labs you should be aware of are that his temperature was 39.2 degrees Celsius. He had a blood pressure of 104 over 72, a heart rate of 98, a white blood cell count of 14.2, a respiratory rate of 28, and all of his other labs and vitals were within normal limits. Before we go into my first question for today, you all can pull out your smartphones or your devices and respond to these questions on pollev.com slash mayorx. You can also download the app and put in mayorx in all caps and answer that way or you can text MAYORX in all caps to 22333 to join. So my question for you today is which of the following con species is most likely to be causing this patient's positive blood culture in a hospital setting? A, Staph saprophyticus, B, Staph epidermidis, C, Staph lugdunensis, or D, Staph hemolyticus? Okay, great. It looks like you are all choosing the correct answer, which is staph epidermidis. We'll review why the others are incorrect. Staph saprophyticus, although it can be seen in the hospital, is more commonly associated with urinary tract infections versus bloodstream infections.
C, staph lugdunensis is incorrect, mostly because it isn't as commonly seen as staph epidermidis, but also because it needs to be managed in a different way. And D, staph hemolyticus is incorrect because it can also cause bloodstream infections, but it is not as commonly clinically seen as staph epidermidis, which is why B, staph epidermidis, is the correct answer in this case. Now, the next question we are thinking about is, well, how do we determine if this patient has a pathogen or a contaminant when their blood cultures return positive with cons? And there are two studies I want to look at that looked into this. This first study's aim was to determine the frequency of isolation and resistance of CONS isolates from nosocomial bloodstream infections and to identify the risk factors associated with them. It was a cross-sectional descriptive study that was conducted at a single tertiary care hospital. There were four different ways that patients could be included into the study. The first is if they had a bacteremia within two days of catheter removal and a tip culture with greater than 15 CFUs of cons. If they had two blood cultures positive for both the peripheral and catheter line. If they had one positive blood culture and several systemic and local signs of infection. And finally, if they had one positive blood culture and systemic signs that resolved up to 36 hours after their catheter was removed. The only exclusion criteria in this case was patients who grew Staphylococcus lugdunensis, again, because they have to be managed differently. For the results of this study, they had 75 patients in the infection group and 133 patients in the contamination group. In past studies, they looked at whether or not central venous catheters were associated more with infection versus contamination, and they found that central venous catheters were much more likely to be associated with infection. And that was also the case with this study. 92% of the patients in the infection group had a central venous catheter, while only 71.4% did in the contamination group. And this was found to be statistically significant with a p-value of less than 0.0001. Other statistically significant findings were that patients in the ICU and patients who had just had prior antibiotic therapy were much more likely to have an infection than have a contaminant. One last thing to look at is that the number of positive blood cultures drawn and the number of blood cultures drawn in general was higher than in the infection group than in the contamination group. And you can see that the median number of positive blood cultures in the infection group was two, which lines back up with our rate of contamination. It's much more likely if two of two blood cultures come back positive that the patient has infection versus contamination. Well, in the contamination group, all of those patients only had one positive blood culture. So from this study, we were able to get a good baseline of some of the predictors of infection. But this next study that we'll discuss looked further into different criteria. They actually utilized the Sears criteria to evaluate predictors of bloodstream infections. A reminder that the Sears criteria are when patients have either a fever or hypothermia, their respiratory rate is greater than 20, their heart rate is greater than 90, or if they have a leukocytosis or leukopenia. The methods of this study, it was a prospective single center study with 654 patients total. They included any patient who had one or more positive blood culture with no apparent infection at another site. They excluded patients who had a neutropenic count of less, with a leukocyte count of less than four, and patients who had polymicrobial blood cultures. 
Polymicrobial blood cultures were defined as two bacteria present in the same culture or two bacteria present in two different cultures drawn within a 48-hour time frame. If we look at the results of this study, they had 422 patients in their contamination group and 232 patients in the bloodstream infection group. With all four Sears criteria, which are the top four categories listed on this bar graph, there was much higher significance in the bloodstream infection group than in the contamination group. As seen with the previous study, there is also much higher risk of having a central venous catheter being associated with a bloodstream infection than with contamination. One interesting finding that I liked that they discussed in this paper was that they looked at patients who had no Sears criteria at the time of positive blood culture. And what they found was that in the bloodstream infection group, only 5% of the patients had no Sears criteria, whereas in the contamination group, almost 30% of the patients had no Sears criteria. So most patients with bloodstream infections were showing signs and symptoms. Finally, they assessed what patients had more than one positive blood culture drawn. And again, this was most commonly seen in the bloodstream infection group versus only in about 12% of patients in the contamination group. All of these findings I've listed here were statistically significant with a p-value of less than 0.0001. From this study, they were able to create an algorithm to help providers determine whether their patient had a pathogen or a contaminant if the cultures came back with cons. They determined that three separate pathways on this algorithm were statistically significant for it being an infection. The first was regardless of central venous catheter presence or absence, if the patient had two or more positive blood cultures, they were much more likely to have an infection than a contamination. The second was if your patient had a central venous catheter present, but only one positive blood culture. If they had two or more Sears criteria present, they were much more likely to have an infection. And finally, in the patients where, who did not have a central venous catheter present, if they had only one positive blood culture, but three or more Sears criteria, they were also much more likely to have an infection than have contamination. And so this study provided us with several predictors of infection. And from the two studies, I put together my own list of summary of predictors of infections. And they are presence of a central venous catheter, presence of an implant or device, a fever of greater than 38 or hypothermia of less than 36, patients with a heart rate of greater than 90, patients with a respiratory rate of greater than 20, patients who had a leukocyte count of greater than 12 or less than four, patients who had more than one positive blood culture, patients admitted to the ICU, and patients who had just had previous antibiotic therapy. So this brings us back to our patient case for today. Again, he is a 79-year-old male in the ICU with respiratory failure. He developed fevers on day four, so they drew blood cultures, and one of two of them came back positive with coagulase-negative staphylococcus. A reminder of some of his vitals and laboratory work. I won't go through all of them, but I will let you guys think about how many predictors of infection does this patient have for a true coagulase-negative staphylococcus? And so I'll let you think about that for a few seconds before we move on to the next slide where you can put in your answer. Okay, I will go ahead and move on to our poll everywhere question. Again, how many predictors of a true coagulase-negative staphylococcus infection does this patient have? A, two, 
B4, C6, or D8? It looks like the answers here are a little bit all over the board, so we'll go ahead and review what predictors of infection this patient had. So this patient had the presence of a central venous catheter. He did not have an implant or device. He had a fever of greater than 38 degrees Celsius. He had a heart rate of greater than 90. He had a respiratory rate of greater than 20, a leukocyte count of greater than 12. He only had one positive blood culture, but he was admitted to the ICU, and we do not know that he has been on prior antibiotic therapy. So in this case, this patient had six predictors of infection, which would make me think that he does likely have an infection, and so I would want to empirically cover him with antibiotics. And that brings us into our next question. Well, if we do think our patient has an infection, how are we going to treat them? Before I dive into the medications, I first want to talk about one more study that looked at utilizing algorithm-based therapy versus usual care, similar to the algorithm that was created in the second study we looked at. This was an open-label randomized trial that randomized patients to either algorithm-based therapy or usual practice. Inclusion criteria included patients who were greater than 18 years of age or patients with one or more positive blood cultures for either Staphylococcus aureus or CONS. I will be only focusing on the results from the CONS part of the study. For the exclusion criteria, they excluded patients with complicated infections, with polymicrobial bacteremias, with non-removable intravascular catheters, and patients who were on previous antibiotics. The primary outcome was looking at the success rate at the test of cure evaluation, and the investigator reported serious adverse event rates. Secondary outcomes were looking at the antibiotic days with simple or uncomplicated bacteremias, and also looking at the association between vancomycin MICs and clinical outcomes. The goal of this study was to determine that algorithm-based therapy was non-inferior to usual care. They clinically classified their patients into three separate groups, simple, uncomplicated, or complicated infections. The simple infection group made up about 51.1% of the patients, and this was patients who had one blood culture positive, negative follow-up blood cultures, and no signs or symptoms of infection, or in no prosthetic devices. Patients in the uncomplicated category made up about 17.8% of the population, this was patients with either two or more positive blood cultures drawn less than 24 hours apart, or patients with one single blood culture positive, plus several signs and symptoms of infection. And finally, in our complicated patient group, this made up about 6.7% of the population, and this was patients with two or more blood cultures positive from samples drawn more than 24 hours apart, or if patients had an echo that had evidence of endocarditis, or if the patients had signs and symptoms of metastatic infection. When we look at the results in the algorithm-based therapy group, there were 194 patients with consbacteremias, whereas in the usual practice group, there were 191 patients. Both groups had high treatment success, 85.6% with algorithm-based and 87.9% with the usual practice. They then broke up into the three groups, simple, uncomplicated, and complicated. You can see with the simple cons group, the majority of these patients had high treatment success. 
They looked at whether the patients were observed without antibiotics or whether they were treated with antibiotics, and there was high treatment success with both. For the uncomplicated CONS group, 87.2% had treatment success with algorithm-based and 92.3% in the usual practice group. And finally, in the complicated CONS group, 89.5% had treatment success, whereas only 73.3% did with the usual practice. And so with these results, the authors were able to conclude that algorithm-based therapy was non-inferior to usual practice. One finding that I found to be interesting was the duration of therapy, which was one of the secondary outcomes. Patients in the algorithm-based group had about two days less of antibiotics than patients in the usual practice group that had almost just as high of a treatment success rate. So the takeaways from this study are that algorithm-based therapy can help support our antimicrobial stewardship initiatives by utilizing a lower amount of antibiotic days for treatment. Additionally, this study brought up the fact that if patients do have a simple infection, which remember is just one positive blood culture, but no signs or symptoms of infection, then they may not even need antibiotics to help with treatment. So now that we've looked at that study, we can think about how we would go about treating our patient who does have an infection. The first thing I like to look at is whether or not the institution that I work at has an antibiogram. Here at Mayo Clinic, we do have susceptibility rates for con species, and I compared these to the general reported public's percent susceptibility rates. At Mayo, we have 40% susceptibility to oxacillin, which is actually higher than the general public, but is still pretty resistant. But vancomycin, linazolid, and daptomycin all have high susceptibility rates at or near 100%. Vancomycin is the medication that has the most clinical studies performed with it in regards to cons bacteremias. There are other medications as well, but there, there are high initial resistance rates, so these are not necessarily the go-to agents. The second thing I like to think about is, well, if I have a patient whose blood culture that comes back positive, how is my laboratory going to report out this information? At Mayo, for any patient where a gram-positive cocci is resembling staphylococcus, the laboratory routes it to a second machine that the detects the MEK-A presence or absence, regardless of the staphylococcus species. If the bacteria speciates out to either staph epidermidis or staph lugdunensis, then the lab will report out the MEK-A presence or absence. However, if it's a different staphylococcus species and you suspect infection, you have to directly call the lab to get the MECA status uncovered. With that being said, now we can go into what we would recommend for empiric treatment. So if the patient does not have MECA present, that means that the bacteria is oxacillin or methicillin sensitive and can be treated with nafcillin, oxacillin, or a first-generation cephalosporin. However, if we do not yet know the MECA status, or if we know that MECA is present, then our first-line treatment recommendation would be with vancomycin, daptomycin, and linazolid. Now, there are cases when this empiric therapy will not be enough and where adjunctive agents would be necessary. This information is outside of the scope of this presentation, but I just wanted to quickly touch on it to make everyone aware. The first case is if you have a patient with a prosthetic valve and endocarditis has not yet been ruled out, 
Then you treat with gentamicin, vancomycin, and rifampin. The second is if you have concerns that a biofilm could be present, especially in patients with a device or a prosthetic valve, then you could consider combination therapy with rifampin. Now that we've discussed empiric therapy, the next step is how we definitively treat our patients once susceptibilities and sensitivities return. So if we find out that our patient does have MECA present, then the drug of choice is vancomycin. The important thing to look at with vancomycin is what the MIC value is. We consider vanco to be susceptible if the MIC is less than four. However, if it's greater than four, you may want to consider an alternative. For vancomycin, our dosing is typically a 15 to 20 milligram per kilogram load, and then you would follow up with your patient's institution in terms of how often you would dose it. And then the trough goal here at Mayo is 10 to 15 micrograms per milliliter. If MECA is present, we can treat with either oxacillin or cefazolin. For oxacillin, the MIC values to be aware of are that it is susceptible if it's less than 0.25 or resistant if the MIC value is greater than or equal to 0.5 micrograms per mil. Now with the MECA being present or absent, that should already clue us in to what the minimum inhibitory concentration value is. Oxacillin dosing is two grams every four hours, but we do need to renally dose adjust. And with cefazolin, we dose at two grams every eight hours, and that also needs to be renally dose adjusted. In terms of general recommendations for management, this is specific to patients who have a catheter-related bloodstream infection. But if you are able to remove the catheter, which is generally recommended, you remove the catheter and treat with antibiotics. Sometimes, as we mentioned with the studies, just removal of the catheter itself can be sufficient for therapy, but I would only think about this when your patient may have a simple infection, which is only one positive blood culture and no signs or symptoms of infection. The one exception to removing catheters is if your patient has a tunneled central catheter, then you would want to treat with both systemic antibiotics and antibiotic locks to get the therapy directly to the site of infection. If your patients have persistent fevers or bacteremias for more than three days after starting antibiotics, then it's recommended to remove that catheter. The last step in thinking about how we treat our patients is what the duration of therapy is. For a bloodstream infection, we first need to de determine the source and obtain source control if possible. If it is an isolated bacteremia with no visceral involvement, you can treat for seven to 14 days. However, this duration may vary based on our patient's severity and clinical response to antibiotics. For catheter infections, the Infectious Disease Society of America does have specific recommendations for duration. If you are able to remove the catheter, you should treat with antibiotics for five to seven days. But if you have to retain the catheter, you treat for a longer course of 10 to 14 days with both systemic therapy and antibiotic lock therapy. And again, if it's a simple infection, you could consider observing without antibiotics. That brings us back into our patient case where we can apply this information we just learned. As a reminder, it's our 79-year-old male who has one of two blood cultures positive with cons. Here are his vitals and labs again. But we have one more piece of information before we determine treatment. The MECA gene has been identified. So with that, we can move into the third Poll Everywhere question. It is, what recommendation do you make for treatment for the patient? A, oxacillin, B, vancomycin, C, doxycycline, 
or D, no antibiotics are needed. Excellent. It looks like all of you are choosing the correct answer, which is B, vancomycin. And this is the correct answer due to the presence of MEK-A. A, oxacillin is incorrect because MEK-A was present, so it would be resistant to this antibiotic. C, doxycycline is incorrect because there is high initial resistance to this antibiotic. D, no antibiotics are needed is incorrect because as we established after the second section of this presentation, this patient has several predictors of infection and we would need to empirically treat him. My treatment recommendations in PEARLS are to treat bloodstream infections and catheter-related bloodstream infections if our patient has multiple signs and symptoms indicative of an infection and positive blood cultures. I ideally would like to see more than one blood culture come back positive, but if they only had one positive blood culture, I would clinically assess. If the patient had MEK-A present, which would indicate that it's methicillin resistant, my first line treatment of choice would be vancomycin. And if they had the presence of the MEK-A, or the absence of the MEK-A gene, and thus the bacteria was methicillin sensitive, I would treat with oxacillin or cefazolin. In terms of the duration of treatment, if, we, if the patient has a catheter-related bloodstream infection and we remove it, I would treat for five to seven days. Otherwise, if they had a bloodstream infection, I would need to clinically assess my patient and determine proper duration of therapy based on their response to antibiotics. In summary, with this presentation, we were able to recognize that Staph epidermidis is the most clinically encountered coagulase-negative staph species, and it's associated with several types of hospital infections, including catheter-related bloodstream infections and bloodstream infections as well. We were also able to establish predictors of infection that help us determine when a patient has a true pathogen versus when they may have a contaminant. And finally, we were able to determine the appropriate treatment and duration of therapy for our patients with catheter-related bloodstream infections and bloodstream infections due to coagulase-negative staph species, which I just reviewed on the previous slide. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.